sticks, sticks. Uh, your investment would be worth around $300,000 without adding one dime to it. But if you would have invested $1,000 in Amazon when it went public 20 years ago in 1997, your investment would be worth about $650,000 today. If you could, how many of you would like to, knowing that now, go back in time about 20 years (laughs) and find yourself assuming it wouldn't cause a disruption in the space-time continuum, and say, listen, there's this little company called Amazon. Sell everything, buy their stock, right? I mean, you know, (laughs) I will meet you on the beach at the Mercedes dealership in 20 years, you know. Um, Here's the real kicker. If you would have bought 50 shares, just 50 shares of McDonald's stock when it first went public in April of 1965, and not put one more dime into that investment... You could go out and buy a brand new Honda Accord (laughs) and still have a million dollars left over. One million and twenty grand or so. Something like that would be what it's worth. Now that makes me really wish that time travel is possible. It's not. Time is linear. This way God made it. But it reminds me of that scene in Back to the Future 2 where Biff, old Biff from the future goes back in time to meet young Biff and give him the sports almanac. Watch. Oh. This cost me 300 bucks! Would you shut up about the car? Hey, and another thing. How do you know where I live? Let's just say we're related, Biff. And that being the case, I got a little present for you. Something that'll make you rich. You want to be rich, don't you? Oh, yeah, sure, right. That's rich. (laughs) You're going to make me rich? (laughs) You see, this book, this book tells the future. Tells the results of every major sports event till the end of the century. Football, baseball, horse races, boxing. The information in here is worth millions, and I'm giving it to you. Well, that's very nice. Thank you very much. Now, why don't you make like a tree and get out of (laughs) here? It's leave, you idiot. Make like a tree and leave. You sound like a fool when you say it wrong. All right, then leave and take your book with you. Don't you get it? You could make a fortune with this book. Let me show you. Trail 17 to 16. It's fourth and 11 with only 18 seconds left in this game. I'd say it's all over for UCLA. Bet you a million bucks UCLA wins at 19 to 17. What are you, deaf old man? He just said it was over. You lost. Oh, yeah? Here comes Decker with a kick. It's up. It looks good, folks. It looks very good. Field goal. UCLA wins 19 to 17. Listen to it. Comes the impromptu All right, Pops, what's the gag? How did you know what the score was going to be? I told you, it's in this book. All you got to do is bet on the winner and you'll never lose. Wouldn't that be cool? Travel back in time, give your younger self some investing advice, maybe hand off an invention or two. (laughs) See this little flat piece of glass? It's awesome. It talks to people over the air, you know, um, and does a million other things. Maybe hand out some relationship advice. Don't date him. Um, It'd be amazing. What if you could make an investment in the future that you knew would pay off big time? 
That's what we're going to talk about today. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to look at a couple passages, one in 1 Corinthians and one in 2 Corinthians. I want to thank you for being here today. Uh, we're, we're concluding a sermon series today. If you're joining us for the first time, thanks so much for being here. I'd love to meet you when we're done. I'll be right down front. Please come down and say hi. If you're joining us online, thanks for logging in. Uh, we apologize for the trouble we had last week. Uh, on Saturday of last week, our server died. And the uh, web stream was looking, we moved everything to the cloud, everything's fine, uh, but the server, the web stream was looking for the old server that was, you know, six feet under. So um, it's fixed now, well, hopefully uh, everybody is joining us. So if you're joining us online, thanks, and uh, please sure to fill out your online connection card. Um, we're concluding this sermon series called Invested. We've been talking about how to make investments that pay eternal dividends. Today we're talking about investing in the future. And I want to jump right into our text this morning. We're going to read two different passages where Paul talks about investing in the future. The first one is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 5. Look at this with me. After all, he says, what is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants. Through whom, you, through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have the same purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. Now flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, starting in verse 6. Paul says this, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should... Give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things and at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your stock store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace that God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. I think in these two passages... Paul is teaching us how to invest for the future. Here's where we're going today. Here's today's big idea. For the church to reach her redemptive potential, we must position ourselves to make significant gospel investments, the results of which we may not live to see. Now, I know that's a mouthful. That, that, that's a lot, okay? Here's what it means to be invested in the future, it means that we're going to make significant investments that, that are gospel-focused, gospel-driven, 
in order, we really need to reach our redemptive potential. And I realize that that term may be new to you, so let me explain what I mean by redemptive potential, okay? A a church's redemptive potential is when 100% of everything that God has given us is used to accomplish his mission. When we use 100% of everything that God has blessed us with to accomplish his, or our part of his mission, that's reaching our redemptive potential. And what it means to be invested in the future is, is to strive to reach that. To say, if you're going to invest in the future, it's to say, all right, I want to reach that redemptive potential. I want to put into use 100% of everything that God has given us to accomplish our part of his mission. And that involves being positioned correctly to use those things. Now, we may not live to see the, the results of this, but I think it's vital for us to do this. When we allow his priorities rather than our preferences to dictate what we do, that's what enables us to be invested in the future. Okay, so if, it, if what it's going to take for us to reach our redemptive potential is to position ourselves correctly, how do we do that? I think these passages from 1st and 2nd Corinthians would, ex- would suggest three essential parts of this positioning plan. Now that's business and marketing language. A positioning plan is what a company does when they decide to uh, advertise their business. They'll say, okay, let's see, there's all these other products out there, and, and here's kind of where we fit in that, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to utilize this part of our company. We're going to advertise these services. And I think God would have his church think through, at least, their positioning plan in our culture. Paul, I believe, lays out three key parts to that plan. Here's the first one. Number one, we need to be ideologically positioned. We need to be ideologically positioned. And the good news is, we already are. We have the the message of life. God has given us his truth. And all we have to do is faithfully proclaim the message of Jesus' death and resurrection to redeem the world, no matter how unpopular it may get in the future. People don't like having their sin focused on. That's not fun. Have you been watching the news lately? It's all coming out, and nobody's having fun with it. And we have the message of redemption. And it's because of the possibility of that message, our Christian ideology, being culturally unpopular, that Paul downplays in this text the role of individual leaders. The Corinthians had this thing where they're like, oh, this guy's awesome. No, I follow this guy. No, I want to be that guy's disciple. And Paul is telling them, quit. Just that, That's not helping. Don't do that. It's not about that. It's about the message. It's about the gospel. In fact, he says here that these men are simply servants, and the word he uses there is the root of our word, deacon. The, the meaning of the word, though, is simply servant. They're simply servants in God's larger plan to help his people grow and be built into the temple of Jesus, the, the church. The church is not a building, it's a people. And Paul's very aware of his own role in their salvation. I mean, he planted this church. He started it. He planted the seed, he says. He's not boasting. He's just stating a fact. He's also conscious, though, that God is the only one who grows a church. And the same that's true in the life of a person is true in the life of a church. God is the one who gives the growth. In fact, the word translated makes or making it grow in verse 6 and 7 is one that means literally to cause something to increase. The church is designed by God to grow. And this is so interesting. Paul says, you are our product. (laughs) I want you to think of what he's saying. That what the church cranks out, if you think of the church as a business or a factory, our product is people who are like Jesus. 
That's what the church ought to be. It's a disciple-making factory. It doesn't always work that way, sadly. But that's the image that Paul is using here. Now, he's using more of an agricultural image. That's more of an industrial image. The same is true. What, what we, the, the crop we take to market, <laughs> the crop we take out into the marketplace is people who are like Jesus. And that would have resonated with the Corinthians. You need to know this. The city of Corinth um, had been a center of trade and commerce in the ancient Roman world for a thousand years by Paul's time. A thousand years B.C., like roughly the time of King David and Solomon, that's when Corinth begins to rise as a center of international trade and commerce. But Corinth was also the hub for the worship of the Greek uh, goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love and sex. So if you want to understand Corinth, think of it like this. Combine Madison Avenue in New York City and the Strip in Las Vegas. That's Corinth in Paul's time. And he says, church, you have the message that they need to hear. A culture dominated by materialism and sensuality. Sound familiar? He says, you are ideologically positioned to reach that culture. You have the message that they need to hear. Go tell them. You're already there. You've got what they need to know. You already have it. So make sure that they know that. And he's concerned about their future, not only that they will resist the urge to gravitate toward one teacher or another, but that they will continue to participate, to share together with God in the work of building up and growing up the church. Church, we're already positioned. We are th This piece of the plan, we've already got. So check, we're done. But there are two other aspects to helping us get positioned to invest in the future. The second is being financially positioned. In the passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, verse 6 through 15, we read about the principle of the harvest. You sow a little, you'll reap a little. You sow a lot, you'll reap a lot. And to me, it's a real shame that crooked TV evangelists have co-opted this language of sowing a seed to fleece the flock of their money, which could have been far better invested than buying lavish homes and private jets for those people. See, when you give significantly to a local church or a Christian institution like a Bible college or a long-standing mission, assuming that they have effective financial management practices and the Lord tarries, if He delays His coming... There's no reason that your investment shouldn't long outlive you. <laughs> You're giving to something that you, you may not even see the results of that investment, but it can grow and flourish in ways that you've not even perceived. And listen, I don't know if we're drawing near the imminent return of Jesus. I know very, many serious, sober-minded Christians. They're not flighty. They're not, you know, just off to la-la land. I mean, they're really serious, devout Christians who believe that we are. We really believe that the second coming is near. Um, I also know that the Old Testament age was about 4,000 years long, at least. We're like halfway through that. So I, do we have any reason to believe that our, the age of the church is going to be less than the age of the Old Testament? I don't know. I don't know. I, I do know this. Whether Jesus is coming again soon or not, it, it, it feels like it to him. He says soon. <laughs> um, 
some kind of change is coming. I don't know what that is. I really don't. Do you, am, I, am I alone? Do you guys feel that with me? Do you, you have this sense that something's changing? <laughs> I, I, that's where I'm at. And I have this sense that because of this change that's coming, that may be the second coming, I don't know. Regardless, I want to be ready. When you read the parables of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to spend some time in Matthew next year. When you read those parables over and over and over and over again, be ready, be ready, be ready. <laughs> so I want us to be ready even financially. How do we do that? Well, I think there's four parts to this, this piece of the plan. Uh, the first is that it's intentional. This, this plan to be financially positioned is intentional. When I say intentional, I mean that there's got to be a plan for this. Being financially positioned to invest in the future does not happen accidentally. You know, I told you stories before about investing in Microsoft and Amazon and McDonald's. You, you, you don't accidentally do stuff like that. You have to be intentional about it. You have to have a plan. The cool thing about planned giving, and I don't think we think about very much, is that it's about the only thing I know of that can make somebody praise God. <laughs> Did you see that? Paul says, when you do this, when you make a plan and you invest financially in the future of the church, it will make people praise God. How cool is that? Like you can do something that will actually make people praise God. The only other thing I can think of that does that would be like the miraculous gift of healing, which is just not terribly common in the West for some reason. It seems to be more common in the East and in the South. But, but doing this... It is, Paul says it makes somebody praise God. And I want you to notice that Paul instructs the church to give what each one has. Did you catch this language? Decided in your heart to give. Now the word translated decided there when it appears in other forms in the New Testament is often used to speak of God's redemptive plan for the future. So in both the context here and in other places where the word is used in the New Testament, the idea is that this kind of deciding beforehand is actually used far more commonly in relationship to God's plan to save the world through Jesus. And when you decide to participate in, and make this investment in the, the financial health of the church long term, you're participating in God's plan to redeem the world through Jesus. It's bigger than just dollars and cents, y'all. It, it means more than that. And you've got to have a plan. It's got to be intentional. <laughs> I saw this illustrated this week uh, on Facebook. If you're friends with Andy Goodwin, you might have seen this. Uh, this week, Andy Goodwin and his son Theo, who was baptized uh, several months ago. Theo's six years old. Really, really, really bright little guy. Uh, one year older exactly on the day than my son Evan. They're good buddies. Um, they were playing yesterday. But Theo, uh, they're driving by Eagle Creek Dam, and they, they were letting water out. And Andy said, you see how they're letting out the water? And Theo, six years old says this, and I quote, yeah, I wonder if they thought about the fish. I mean, you have to have a plan. Without a plan, there'd be nothing. No cars, no trucks, no airplanes, no farms, no houses, nothing. You just have to have a plan. He's six. <laughs> he gets it. <laughs> He's right. And that's my point. When you are intentional in your giving, you're participating in God's plan to redeem the world through Jesus. The second part is this, is it's generous. And let me be really clear here. Biblically speaking, generosity has nothing to do, zilch, with the amount. Generosity, listen to me, listen. Generosity is not about the number figure on the line on the check. 
It's not what it's about, biblically. And as we enter a season of gift giving, it's important to remember what generosity means. In the Bible, it means you're giving away something that you need. Giving away something you don't need is not generosity, it's charity. Which is fine, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. Biblically speaking, generosity means giving away something that you need and you can use. And it's important that we notice what this text is not saying. First of all, it's not saying that God makes rich people generous. Quite the opposite. He says you have to be generous with what God has given you before he will let you have more to give give away. Secondly, it's not saying that just because someone is rich that they have God's grace just flowing out every corner of their lives. Jesus was quite emphatic with his disciples on that point. Just because somebody's rich doesn't mean they've got God's favor just blowing out of their life in every corner. Riches in this world, blessing in this world, as it's often termed, are not the sigil of God's blessing. Grace is. If you want to see someone who God is working in their life big time, look for grace, not money. That's somebody who God is working in. And grace has many expressions, one of which is generosity. And finally, this text is not saying that generous people, uh, that the generous people that this text describes have all the outward hallmarks of wealth. They may not. Rather, the text says they have everything they need, verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 9, and they give generously from that. So it's intentional. You've got to have a plan. It's generous. So here's the third thing. It's grace-driven. This means that being financially positioned to invest in the future is only part of or one expression of God's grace. Now you need to understand the phrase in the NIV translation of verse 8. Look at this with me again. In 2 Corinthians uh, verse 9 or chapter 9, look at verse 8. Do you see this? He says, God is able to bless you abundantly. Normally, I like the NIV a lot. It's what I do my devotions out of. You've noticed that's what I preach from. Generally speaking, it's a good translation. It's the best balance I've found between, um, you know, being really literal, like following the original Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic text, and being what they call dynamically equivalent. In other words, it makes you feel the same things that the original audience would have felt when you read it. And the NIV kind of straddles the gap. It's kind of right between the two. Most of the time, it's really good. Not right there. And if you're looking at another translation, you may have noticed if you've got an English Standard Version or a New American Standard or even the King James says it uses the phrase, uh, the way it translates it here is um, to, uh, where to go, to cause all grace to abound to you. It's a much better translation. Because here in the West, in our, our, our secular materialistic culture, when we hear the phrase, bless you abundantly, we automatically think of, oh yeah, more stuff. It's not what this is saying. That's not what it's about. It's much bigger than that. The word translated bless here in the NIV in verse 8 is the normal New Testament word for grace. But we're fallen, we're corrupt by sin, and so we hear bless you abundantly, and we go, oh yeah, God's going to give me more stuff, because that's what you need, that's what will make you more like Jesus. (coughs) No. No, the gracious gifts of God go so much further than simply material blessings. They include that, but they're way bigger. 
in our context here, financial investment in kingdom work is set right next to using other expressions of God's grace, like holy, righteous living in verse 10, like showing gratitude in verse 11, like serving um, people in verse 12, like sharing the gospel in verse 13, like prayer in verse 14. All of those are expressions of grace. Investing in the future is only part of the work of God's grace in you. It is an important part, but it's only part of it. And this financial positioning is driven by the grace of God in you and is a significant part of the broader work of God's grace in your life. And there's one more part of God's plan. We see it in verse 13. Look at this with me again. He says, Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. There's one more part of this plan for us to be financially positioned to invest in the future, and it's gospel-focused. This plan is gospel-focused. What Paul is saying here is that being financially positioned to invest in the future should lead to greater gospel proclamation. What he's saying here is that the engine of generosity is evangelism. It's telling more people about Jesus. Do you want to know the number? Do you, do you want to know the price tag? $30 million. That's the price. I had lunch with a couple guys who work for Pioneer Bible Translators. We met uh, recently, a couple weeks ago, and they told me, and, and I have every reason to believe that they're right, that the cost, the price tag, to send a Bible translator and church planting team to every unreached people group left on the face of the earth is $30 million. Here's what that means. In Matthew 28, 19, and 20, when Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples and baptize them and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you and surely I'll be with you always to the end of the earth, end of the age. <laughs> the price tag to complete that job is 30, 30 million bucks. That would take the gospel to every unreached. Now, whether or not they respond, that's up to them and God. I don't know how all that works. But at least so that they would know. At least so that they could hear about Jesus. According to Pioneer Bible Translators, the, the cost is $30 million. And barring some ginormous gift that somebody just gives them, we're on track to complete that, y'all, by 2045. At the pace that they're going, and Pioneers is linked up with like Wycliffe and some of the other Bible translation ministries. They're all, and now they're all sharing information. So, okay, you're going here, we're going here, you're going there, we're going over here. <laughs> so that their efforts are not reduplicated and they're, they're spreading the gospel as quickly and efficiently as they possibly can. At the pace they're going right now, we're on track to complete at least that part of the Great Commission where everyone can hear the good news about Jesus by 2045. Listen, listen, some of you may live to see that. When we talk about giving at Chapel Rock, it's not to keep the lights on. It's not to pay the staff. It's to spread the gospel. It's, it's gospel-driven. 
this being financially positioned to do this. It, it matters because if, if present trends continue, this might be done in our lifetime. In my lifetime, we may see this complete. You have a couple inserts in your bulletin today. Um, one of them is about helping us get ready for Christmas, but the other is an admittedly oversimplified uh, checklist of sorts on how to leave a legacy gift for Chapel Rock or any other Christian institution. If, if this is something that, you, that God is putting on your heart today, if you're challenged by what Paul says in the text, I, I, want, I want you to take this home and look at it. Think about it, pray about it. Um, and here's why I say this. Um, about two years ago when I joined the staff uh, at Chapel Rock, or really before I did technically, uh, I asked them to purchase a demographic study. Uh, they did, and uh, we've been poring over that for the last uh, couple years or so, thinking about what that means for us here in the future. Um, the study looked at a four-mile radius around the church. So it went out four miles. So it, it did not catch some of the other large Christian churches in the area, Traders Point, Kingsway, you know, uh, connection point. It, it didn't catch them, but it, it goes out about four miles. Um, goes out into some of the suburbs in Avon, goes into, you know, Speedway and the, almost the edge of Hawville. I mean, it, it, it's, it's really a diverse area. And, and what we found is that the fastest growing demographic in a four-mile radius around the church is single moms. It's an incredible opportunity for ministry, my friends. It's an incredible opportunity to go... go Love people with the love of Jesus. But if you know anything about single moms and, and how much extra cash they have floating around, <laughs> not much. And so for me as a leader here at Chapel Rock to make sure that it, if by 2045, that's when Jesus comes back, when the Great Commission, when every people, tribe, tongue, nation, language on earth has heard the gospel, if that's the trigger, we don't know that it is, but if that's what it is, that we're still here doing effective gospel ministry on the west side of Indianapolis. I know, looking at the demographics, that the people immediately close to Chapel Rock are, are as, as time goes on, not going to have a ton of extra money. And so I'm asking you, thinking out down the road, to really seriously consider helping us be financially positioned to continue to do gospel ministry in the future. To look at leaving a legacy gift for Chapel Rock. Other institutions would be great. But to really think about that, Debbie and I were, literally, we had the phone call scheduled with our financial dude uh, Tuesday. It had been scheduled on the, on the calendar for months. Like, we put it on the calendar. Like, okay, we got to nail down all this stuff and put a section of our, our you know, uh, trust and go to Chapel Rock and, and Ozark and Lincoln. And, <laughs> and in between, when we made the appointment and Tuesday, eh, we're having another kid. So, um... Like, okay, uh, w let's, let's push that off till spring after he's born and we've got a social security number and a full legal name. And then we can do that uh, to try to get that done. But I just want to encourage you to think about that. There's one more part of God's plan uh, for you to invest in the future, and it's the most important part. And it's that you need to get relationally positioned. You need to get relationally positioned. Here's what I mean by that. You, you need to be in proximity to broken, hurting people who are far from God. If we're going to invest in the future of the church, this church, we need to be in relational proximity who need to begin or maybe restart a relationship with Jesus. See, here's the thing. Lost people love to be around Jesus. 
When you read the Gospels, who hung out with him? Prostitutes, tax collectors, and the NIV always puts quotes around it, sinners. <laughs> they love to be around Jesus. Do they love to be around you? Because if they don't, what's the implication there? Maybe I need to be, maybe you need to be a little more like Jesus. Maybe we need to work a little harder at being relationally proximate to lost, hurting, broken people. To be relationally positioned. So how do we do that? How do we fix that? The same way Jesus did. By finding ways to be proximate to broken, hurting people. See, unlike the TV evangelist, when Paul uses the word seed here, he's not referring exclusively to money, I don't think. Now, it includes that, but it's bigger than that. In this passage in 2 Corinthians 9, it sounds like when Paul uses the word seed, he, it means money. But what if he means something more significant? What if he means something bigger? See, when Paul uses the word or concept of planting a seed in 1 Corinthians... He's using it to refer to either the gospel message or the earthly existence of a Christian before they enter eternity. In 1 Corinthians 15, that's how he means it. When he uses the same word or idea in Galatians, he's referring to the community of the people of God. What if he means that bigger concept here in 2 Corinthians? It changes our understanding of this passage. You see, Paul quotes Psalm 112 in, in, in 2 Corinthians 9, 9. And the context of that quote, Psalm 112, is not about material blessings. It's about God's judgment on the righteous and the wicked. See, I think Paul is talking, this idea of seed is way bigger than just money. It doesn't include that, sure, but it's bigger. It's bigger than that. This is about having gospel-focused relationships. Listen, increasing the store of seed or enlarging the harvest of righteousness means more people coming to know Jesus. In verse 11, Paul says, we will be enriched in every way so we can be generous on every occasion. Now, does that include material wealth? Yeah, but it's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. It's about being relationally positioned to hurting broken people so we can share the gospel with them. Just as you've been entrusted with earthly riches, my friends, you've also been entrusted with heavenly riches, the message of God's grace, and he expects you to be generous with that too. Remember, generosity is giving out of something that you need. And you need that message. That Jesus died on the cross in your place for your sins. And because you need it, God expects you to be generous with it. And the only way you're going to do that is to get proximate to people who have not yet experienced being made whole in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've heard the expression, when you plant for a year, plant grass. If you plant for a generation, plant trees. If you want to plant for a century, plant people. God calls us to be generous with the gospel. And the only way we're going to do that is by becoming proximate to people whose brokenness is calling out for Jesus' work in their life. So how do you break out of the Christian bubble? Well, let me throw a couple suggestions at you. If you're not already, be involved in some kind of civic organization or community sports league or something um, where you can be proximate to people who are far away from God, you know? 
How many of you are a little more thankful this year for uh, stretchy clothes after yesterday, Thursday, right? Okay. Like, have you noticed that? Like, there's more clothes with just built, it says built-in flex. Great. I can eat Thanksgiving the way I want. Um, you know, so gym memberships, beat the rush, beat the January rush, just go join a gym to be proximate to hurting people. <laughs> it's, it's tougher there because everyone's jacked in. They've all got their earbuds in, you know. It takes longer, but it's worth it. I, I can testify to that. Here's another suggestion. Don't only listen to Christian radio or only watch and listen to worldview-friendly media outlets. I guarantee your lost friends don't. If, if, if the only thing you intake is worldview-friendly stuff, you've got very little to talk about with your non-Christian friends because they don't watch it. So look for redemptive themes in the stuff that they're encountering. Okay, you'll have more to talk about with them. If you've got a good friend already who doesn't follow Jesus, I want to add, ha, here's what you do. You talk to them and you ha, ask this question. Say, what's it like to be on the other side of me? Do I ever come off like obnoxious and condescending in my faith? Because if the answer's, <laughs> yeah, you've got a little soul work to do. Not quite enough like Jesus yet. I heard a story this week about a lady went to the hospital and nine-week-old kid, nine weeks old, had a health crisis, was at the hospital, came out and there was a parking ticket on her car. <laughs> like, come on, you know, it's when a bad day just goes downhill. But then she got closer and she saw on the parking ticket there was a note. It was written from a total stranger named Laura. And, and the note just said, I, I figure what you're going through is bad enough. You don't need this. I paid it for you. Happy Thanksgiving. Listen, you never know how far your investment in the future may go. And sometimes you'll make an investment in someone's future that you won't even live to see, the results of which you may never even know about, but God can use it to change history. Old Biff told his younger self, you bet on this and you'll never lose. Church, when by the power of the grace of God you invest in the future by staying true to the message, by getting financially positioned to do greater ministry, by getting proximate to lost people, we cannot lose. When's the best time to plant a tree? 20 years ago. When's the second best time? Now. So what are you going to do about this now? Last week we said that we need to be invested in the past because 2,000 years ago on a hill outside Jerusalem, Jesus died on the cross in our place for our sin and rose again. Today I'm telling you that you need to be invested in the future because of what Jesus did. That he wants to use you. He wants to use the grace he's poured out in your life to let other people know. And so you've got a chance to do that today. Maybe you need to let Jesus change your future be Lord of your tomorrows, you need to be baptized to claim the Lordship of Jesus, to surrender your life to him. In just a second, we're going to stand and you can respond to that. We'll have people down here to receive you and take you back to be baptized.
Maybe you need to have a conversation with one of our leaders about something in your life. I would encourage you as we sing to go to the next step room under the yellow awning. Maybe you just have a pressing prayer need and and need someone to pray with you. Again, we'll have people down front ready to receive you. I'm going to ask you to stand with me and you respond as God leads you today.